in your Bible, you can open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you will, please. We won't use that. I won't have you stand and read yet. I'm going to do some background, some information here, but you'll be there. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 in your Bible in a few moments. You bring your Bible still? Okay, I hope you brought it. Hold it up. Let me make sure everybody's got one here. Okay, we're going to use it today, so get it out there and have it at hand. Adrian Rogers said quite a few years ago now, he saw a time in America when there would be apostasy in the pulpit. Apostasy means a falling away from the preaching of the Word of God. Adrian said, I can see it coming. I see a time in the future when there will be apostasy in the pulpit. There will be apathy in the pew, and there will be anarchy in the streets. Apostasy in the pulpit, apathy in the pew, and anarchy in the streets. Well, we've seen a lot of that this week, haven't we? It began with the horrible killing of a man named George Floyd at the hands of a policeman in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And following that horrible uh, event, and I've heard of, I don't think there's a single person in America that approves in any way of what happened there. Let that be said. And then legitimate protest against police brutality began there in Minneapolis. I don't know the history of that city, so I'm not an authority on that at all. I know it is legitimate to protest things that you believe are wrong. The Constitution gives us that privilege. Then those peaceful protests, however, quickly turned into lawlessness. They turned into looting, burning down the core of many of our cities, turned into absolute anarchy in America as Dr. Rogers had predicted. And since that time, there's been billions and billions in property damage. Downtown New York City, they say, looks like a war zone right now after what has happened. Police precincts were abandoned with the whole force just turning their backs and leaving and turning it over to, the, uh, to violence. Hundreds of people have been injured. Several are dead, including a 77-year-old former police captain who was shot as he guarded the property of a friend, a man who had given his entire life to that community and was shot by someone in it. Last night in California, a young police officer was killed along with two or three of his um, colleagues, and they were shot. This man was killed. He's the father of a young child and another one on the way. And every day we're hearing these sad, sad, horrible circumstances and situations. We had, a peace, we had a protest here in Florence twice this week. Thank God both times they were peaceful and they were without incident. Thank the Lord for that. I sure don't want our name to be in the headlines, do you? But it's a heartbreaking scene that we're seeing across America. I have a whole Bible to preach from. I've been preaching from it for over 50 years. I'm not about to run out of sermons. I could have preached on anything. But this is the elephant in the room. This is what everybody has on their mind today. 
And I think that good pastoring and good preaching is preaching on something that is cutting edge, that's relevant, that's what the people need to hear to help them to get from one week to the other in their Christian life. So I want to talk to you about the subject today, a biblical view of race, a biblical view of the race problem that we have in this country. Number one, I have three points. And if you want to write them down, the first one would be this. The Bible teaches that there is only one race, the human race. It's the only race there is. All this racial stuff is an invention of, very frankly, of sociologists. But you won't find it in the Bible. Do you know the only word, I've looked the word up, the only time you find the word R-A-C-E in the Bible is talking about a foot race. It's talking about an athletic event. It's talking about two people running in competition with each other. So the word race as applied to human beings will not be even found in your Bible. Now, why do I say there's just one race, the human race? Because every human being has descended from the same parents. Let me repeat that. Every human being has the same mother and father. And that's where we will now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll look at verse 45 in your Bible, and you will find there that the first man was Adam. The first man is Adam. Well, there's no prehistoric creature. There's no ape-like looking being that preceded Adam. Adam is the very first man that was ever born on this earth, that was created and ever lived on this earth. Now, go the other end of your Bible. Go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and I'll give you a few minutes to find it, huh? Okay, Genesis chapter 3 in your Bible, right there in the opening pages of Scripture, it talks about Eve. And in chapter 3 and verse 20, and Adam called his wife's name Eve. She was the mother of who? All living people. So we have the very first man, he is married to the woman who is the mother of all all, A-double-L-L, living creatures on the earth, all living humans. And then go back one more page, Genesis 1:27, and it tells us that both that man and that woman are made in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, one of the most important verses in the entire book of Genesis, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them, them, male and female. So we have the first man married to the mother of all living, and they come together and they produce children. They are of two sexes, male and female. It doesn't say anything about cisgender. It says male and female, two of them, not 15 genders, not 30 genders, two genders. This is the Word of God. Now, we go over the book of Acts. Can you keep on turning here? Just keep following me because I want you to see it, read it, and 
understand the logic. Adam, the first man, married to Eve, the mother of all living. God created man in his image, and the image of God involves two sexes, male and female. And in Acts chapter 17, Paul is speaking to the intellectuals of Greece. And in Acts chapter 17, and in verse number 26, he hath made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed in the bounds of their habitation. I want you to circle two words, one blood. One blood. He hath made of one blood all the nations of men to dwell on all the earth. And so this first man married to the mother of all living, made in the image of God, one a male and one a female, have produced children, and their descendants, the Bible says, all share one blood, one blood. Years ago, 1990, there was a worldwide, and particularly in America, there was this project called the Human Genome Project. It lasted for 13 years. What the, they did, uh, the the scientists mapped the genome of human beings for the first time in all of history. We had the technology to be able to do it, study the DNA of human beings. Now, the genome, you see the word gene there in it, G-E-N-O-M-E. A genome is, my genome is all 30,000 genes that I have. Did you know you have 30,000 genes? Human beings have about 30,000 genes. A dog has 19,300. I spent several days studying my dog to tell you that today. But a dog has 19,300 genes. A human being has 300. The scientists mapped every single one of those genes in the days when we were really learning about DNA. And you know what we discovered? We discovered the difference between the different people groups on the earth, the different ethnic groups. Here's how it boils down mathematically. The difference between the various, what the world calls races, but we don't believe in, amounted to 0.012%. 0.012%. That's the only difference between a black person, a white person, an Asian person, an Indian person, or whatever else you can think of. Point zero one two percent Now, that slight difference, though, as slight as it is, can produce a lot of differences. It produces differences in our skin color, in our eye shape or facial shape. It produces difference in the texture of hair, it, the skeletal structure itself, weight, size, all that is genetically determined, of course, you know that. But the difference between all the different peoples on the earth, 0.012%. And so, we, that makes sense because you go get a blood transfusion. You don't say what race is the blood, the person's blood, the per, what race was the person whose blood I'm now receiving? When you give your blood and we have our Red Cross blood drive, it may go into the veins of an Asian, 
or another white person or a black person. You don't know. It doesn't matter because there's not enough difference between all the groups of people in, in the world that we can't accept each other's blood. The blood works anywhere. Same thing with transfusions, or pardon me, transplants. With, with human transplants, now think about it. So a young black man gets killed in a car wreck, and they transplant his heart, and it goes into the heart, into the chest of a, of a white person, or vice versa. That our, we are so genetically similar that our organs and our blood are transferable among the races. There really is very little difference because we're all of one race. Shock. The greatest perpetrator of racism in history was Charles Darwin and his evolutionary th theory. Does that shock you? That's where so much of this came from, and we don't talk about it in secular society because evolution is, in many ways, their religion. But the greatest perpetrator of racism was Charles Darwin. Let me tell you why. I remember my biology textbook. I think that was back in 1883, and uh, I opened up my biology textbook, and here's the picture of these people these human-like-looking beings. Did y'all, anybody else have a textbook like that? And it started over here, and here was an ape-looking figure, and then it moved along, and here was finally a humanoid figure, and there was Cro-Magnum Man, and there was, you know, whatever, a, all those different, Heidelberg Man and all that stuff. And finally, we get over here, and do you know who Darwin put next in line? He put... Uh, Australian Aborigine. And then he went from there up to, in his scale, somebody else and somebody else. And at the top, he put a white European, 19th century European. Isn't it any wonder we have people who believe in so-called white supremacy? They were taught that in their, in their public school classroom. Isn't it any wonder then we have the ideas that along came the idea of segregation, and it didn't pass away, especially here in the South until the 1960s. Where did that idea that one group is better than another group come from? It came right out of the halls of the evolutionist. And that, quote, science became the basis for a whole lot of stuff. You see, what Darwin was teaching is that our races... He used the word race to define a subspecies of the human race, the Homo sapiens, in different stages of development. And so people began, they, they derived logically from that. Then if they were taught that in a science classroom, they were taught that there are different levels of human development according to race. So we have racism. Horrible. Now, let me tell you what's happening when you watch, turn on your TV news this week and, and however long it lasts. Let me tell you what you're seeing. We're reaping the crop of 60 years of secular liberal teaching in this area. What we're doing is we're reaping right now what has been sown in this country. It started in the college classrooms 
and it's going up into the halls of Congress, and it goes right through the court system, and it is even in the pulpits, sadly. But we're reaping right now what we've been teaching and training and, and promoting in America for all these years. You see, liberals are all idealists. They're utopianists. They, look, they believe they're going to create a better world. Now, they believe, here, here's, here's how you say it. Are you listening to me? They believe in the perfectibility of the human character. They believe that if we pass just the right laws, and, and, and they believe if we raise the level of education, and uh, they believe if we get the economy right and everybody has equal opportunities uh, economically and people have enough money, then that crime will go down and progress will go forth and enlightenment will occur and all of our problems will be solved. They believe that through external means they can perfect the human character. That's, that's heavy stuff, but I really want you to get it. Liberals believe in the perfectibility of human character through human means that man can improve himself to the point that the problems, the social problems of the world will go away in time. It's evolution applied to social developments, what it really is. Now, you see, here's the deal. Put this one down. This is a principle as true as gravity. External solutions can't correct internal problems. External solutions cannot correct internal problems. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a heart attack. It might make you feel better, but it doesn't change anything. And the schemes that we're seeing worked out in our society, they fail to address the real problem of man because man is flawed at his core. Man is broken. Man is sinful. Man is fallen, the Bible said. And I can take, just watch the news tonight, and you will see it affirmed. That man knew what he was doing to that policeman when he was sitting there on. Why'd he do it? He's broken, he's flawed. These mobs of people going up and down the streets, looting and burning, they know that that's wrong. Why do they do it? We're flawed. We're flawed at the core. And we can stick all the Band-Aids on them we want, the social Band-Aids, the, the, the laws and the economic development and all that kind of stuff, everything that man can think of, and it all fails because the way of man is flawed. Boy, it'd be good to hear somebody say amen in a Baptist church. Do we believe Genesis chapter 3 or do we not believe it, ladies and gentlemen? These schemes all fail. They've been failing for years. They've been failing since the dawn of creation because man is broken and selfish and sinful and flawed. But they blame society. Now the new word is systemic racism. Let me, have, let me just tell you some truth. Racism 
is not systemic. Racism is personal. Racism is individual. It wasn't the system that killed George. It was a man that killed George. The man wasn't made to do it. The man did it of his own volition because of his heart problem that he has. The system doesn't go up and down the streets burning the town and stealing and ruining the businesses. That's not the system. That's individuals who make those choices. When we blame society, what we're doing is we're taking away from people the responsibility for their own actions. I want to tell you something that the American church and American Christians, even at Florence Baptist Temple, need to hear. Hear it well, church. There is real sin outside those doors. It's real. It's destructive. It's anti-God. It's lawless. It's rebellious. It's evil. And we can blame all the systems of the world for it, but our problem is right here. We think if we just pass better laws, if we can elect better politicians, if we can get more money into the hands of people, if we can have a program over here for this, we've been trying that for so long. When in the world do we figure out it ain't working? Minnesota is arguably the most liberal state in the country where this happened. Uh, it's the birthplace of the old farm labor movement. If you've ever studied that, you know who they were. They were socialists. They were communists back in the Dust Bowl days. There were people in Minnesota, and the whole, that whole area bought into this whole idea of socializing things. And they produced some real winners, Walter Mondale, Hubert Humphrey, people that were so far left, it was, they were out of touch. Ronald Reagan won every state in the United States except Minnesota. Liberal, far left liberal. And now they've been trying this stuff. They've been working on this perfectibility, the human nature out there, this whole idea of that, this liberal secularist idea, we don't need God, we don't need religion, all that. And they have a liberal governor. They have two liberal senators. They have the most liberal attorney general in the country. He's a Muslim who's advocated for a total restructuring of our culture. They have a liberal mayor in Minneapolis. They have a liberal police chief. Their congressperson is Ilhan Omar, who now has said she wants to do away with the police in America. Now, if the liberal ideas work so well, how, why did it happen there? If you want to change society, ladies and gentlemen, you've got to change the hearts of the people in it. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 20 Six in your Bible. Would you turn there, please? Ezekiel 26. And I love this verse. And it's been a while since I visited it, but boy, I've got a new view of it now. Ezekiel 36 and verse 26. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. 
stony, hard hearts that people have. And I will give you a heart of flesh, a, a, a tender heart. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you through the spirit and that new heart to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them, and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. What is he saying? If you will come to me, I'll give you a new heart. I'll change you from the inside out. God doesn't work from the circumference to the core. He works from the core out to the circumference. God doesn't deal with external solutions to internal problems. God deals with the heart of man. For out of the heart of man, the Bible says, evil proceedeth. If you're going to change society, you've got to change the hearts of the people who make up that society. Is there an illustration of that happening in history? Oh, absolutely. There's many. I'll give you the most outstanding. It was the 18th century, the 1700s, and going then into the 1800s, the 18th and 19th century abolitionists. And slavery was practiced not just in America. All, America gets a rough call on that. Slavery has been practiced by every single society on the earth. You can go back in ancient history. There are no places that didn't at one time or another practice the terrible, terrible sin and evil of slavery. Well, in 18th century England, 1700s there, you have people began to advocate for getting rid of slavery. But you had a lot of problems there at that time. And one of the problems not only was slavery, but it was the way that children were being exploited because children were being used to work in what they call the sweatshops. You've heard of that. And little children, 8 and 9 and 10 years old, by their parents would be dropped off there and they would work for 10, 12 hours a day at this really close manual labor in these factories in this new industrial revolution period of time. And so these children were being exploited. They were not going to school. They were growing up ignorant. They didn't know anything really about anything except one little task that they would perform repetitiously all day long. And that bothered people who saw what, how the children were being used by these industrial captains. And then there wasn't very many opportunities for education. Unless you were wealthy, you couldn't get a decent education. And so you have all these problems. There's social problems. Crime is high. These kids are all picking pockets and breaking in and burglarizing things. It's a, it's a bad time in the life of England. Across the channel, the French Revolution was boiling. The worst period of time maybe in any nation that we can think of in modern times Tens of thousands of people were being guillotined, and it was, it was a horrible, horrible time. And that revolution was, spirit was beginning to come to England, and there were beginning to be sporadic times of violence and, and, and some of the things even we're seeing today. And God raised up a man. I wish he'd have been a Baptist, but he wasn't. He was a Methodist. He founded Methodism. His name was John Wesley. You're familiar with him. 
Do you know what? He became so controversial, they wouldn't let him preach in established churches. Most of John Wesley's ministry was in fields and on the street corners and standing up on the top of a building in the city and crowds of people gathering down there to hear him. A little slight guy, 5'7 or 5'8, but powerful with Almighty God. And he began to preach across all over England and the British Isles. He traveled to other places, but mostly his ministry was in England. And he was so filled with the Spirit, so anointed of God, that, you know, people began to turn to Christ by the thousands. I mean, at that time, people were not, they, they had deserted the churches, but they were coming back, and they were coming to know Christ and, and taking seriously Christian living. He had a partner, George Whitefield. George was also a powerful, powerful preacher, and God was using him. Finally, George came to America to fight slavery, and he preached up and down. If you go to Myrtle Beach and drive up Highway 17, there's a plaque over there where it says, George Whitefield preached here, and it gave the date that he preached to thousands of people who, again, gathered in the out of doors. And as God began to change the hearts of many, many, many people, you know what happened? Society began to change, and there began to be reforms. One of the men who was saved about that same time was named John Newton. John Newton had actually been the captain of a slave trader ship. He had hauled the slaves from, Eng from, from uh, Africa over to England and down to Barbados in the West Indies. And John Newton, when he talks about that saved a wretch like me. He was the wretch the song refers to. A, a man with his hands stained with the blood of the slaves. A wicked. He refers to himself as a blasphemer. That's how he describes himself. A wicked blasphemer. And Wesley, or uh, Newton rather, preached all over, and he partnered up with John Wesley. And it was a man who became his friend, who was a member of parliament named Wilberforce, William Wilberforce, from the gentry, an upper-class guy, educated at Oxford, but he hated slavery. And he was elected to parliament, and he got under the shadow of John Newton and Thomas Clarkson, another Christian in parliament. And they began to advocate against slavery. They began to fight the slave trade and expose it for its evil. But at the same time, they're preaching the gospel of Christ. The country's singing Amazing Grace, the brand new praise song. And God works revival. And the historians of that day said the French Revolution would have happened in England just like it did in France, except for the Wesleyan revivals. And in time, after working for 30 or 40 years, Wilberforce saw them sign into law the anti-slavery law, and slavery was abolished in England. And then they began to advocate for it across the sea. Wesley was dying.
The last letter that John Wesley wrote in his lifetime was six days before his death. It was to William Wilberforce. And the whole culture was changed. You want social reform? That's how you get it. You change one man at a heart, you, one man at a time. You change their hearts. You don't pass more laws. You don't put more money into some program. You change their hearts. And in America, John, uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards started preaching. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. God is going to judge us. And a great part of the judgment was the way we're treating the slaves. And Charles Grandison Finney, a lawyer, quit practicing law and started preaching. And had the greatest revivals. Oh, it spread like a prairie fire across America. And then in 1859, you have the New York Prayer Revival. Not even has a not even a, a human leader. It's just God moved upon people and they began to go to their churches and pray. And they prayed every day at noon. Every day. And you know what? Within five years, slavery was over in America. The Civil War had been fought. If you want to reform society, you can't put a man-made band-aid on a sinful heart. You change the heart. It's that simple. If you want to change the world, you have to fix what's broken. And what's broken is the heart of man. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Turn to Revelation 7 right quick. Revelation chapter 7 the scene is heaven, verse 9. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, so great that nobody can number it. 200,000, no more than that. 500,000, no more than that. A million, no more than that. So big we can't number it. Talk about diversity. That's the word we hear now. That's a cool word. All nations. The word is ethnos, meaning ethnic groups, not races. All nations, ethnics. And kindreds, people related to each other by blood. And people groups, we call them today. And cultural groups, really, is what that has the idea. And tongues, people who speak different languages. All the different ethnics, all the different kindreds and tribes and people groups and languages, they stand before the throne and before the Lamb. All this multitude of people is seen in heaven before the throne of God. And how are they dressed? They're clothed with white robes, white signifying purity. White meaning they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, as we would say it today. People made pure and clean by the grace of God. What are they doing? They have palms in their hands and they're 
praising the Lord, they're crying with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Palms are waved by crowds of people in those days in celebration of great victories. And so they're saying, we're victorious. But we're not victorious because the legislature passed a better law. We're victorious because the blood of the Lamb, because we have salvation, because our hearts have been changed. And that was the key to us being able to come to heaven. And the theme song of heaven is salvation to our God who sitteth upon the throne and the Lamb. The basis of their unity is their common salvation that they have through the blood of Jesus Christ. Reconciliation, ladies and gentlemen, will not be affected by man's means. It begins by first, hear me, first. If you want reconciliation, you must be reconciled to God. A people must be reconciled to God. A great percentage of the nation. In, in Wesley's day, the whole country wasn't saved. But there were enough people saved that gave it that Judeo-Christian uh, bend to it. The atmosphere changed because enough of God's people savored and flavored, if you would, the entire culture and the entire society. And it begins with being reconciled to God. Until I'm reconciled to God, I'm not going to be reconciled to my fellow man. It begins with getting right with the Lord. Then I'm going to treat you like my neighbor. And I'm going to treat you like a brother. And I'm not going to hurt you. And I'm not going to disrespect you. And I'm not going to talk down to you. I'm not going to steal from you or loot your property. It begins getting the vertical thing right. And then the horizontal thing. And listen to me. This is pretty solemn. This is heavier than I usually. You, you don't say this every week because when you say it, you want it to count. This is God's answer to what's going on in our country. He didn't give us option number two and option number three. This is the way. Walk ye in it the way of the cross. And America kicked God out about 50 years ago. And what do you expect but mayhem and anarchy when people do that? Listen to me. This is God's way, the cross. Reconciliation to God, which leads to reconciliation with each other. And you accept it. or judgment is coming. There's not another option. Go back and read your history. It is turn to God or face judgment. It is revival or ruin. The gospel is the hope. I heard Franklin Graham say that again yesterday too. 
gospel begins with bad news. The gospel tells me I'm a sinner. The gospel tells me I'm a slave. I'm a slave of sin. I'm in bondage to my own lust, the Bible says. I'm, I think I can control myself. I do pretty good for a while with self-discipline and so on, and then it breaks out. I'm a slave to sin. And there's a penalty for that sin. I'm under the condemnation of God. I know people don't want to hear that today. Prophesying to us smooth things, Brother Bill. But until I've come to Christ, I'm under the condemnation of God. I'm separated from Him. And if I die in my sins, I'll be eternally separated from Him. That's the bad news. You want to hear the good news? The good news is that God loves us. The good news is that God looked down and saw our pitiful condition, and He became a man. He became a little baby, the incarnation, Christmas time. The Word was made flesh. Jesus, Mary, you had a baby. How big is he? Seven pounds and two ounces. Jesus, the creator of the world, seven pounds and two ounces. He condescended. He was willing to become almost nothing. Less than a normal man, maybe, even. Poor. Because he loved us. And he grew up, and then he lived a perfect life, so he would be qualified to be our sacrifice for sin. And then he died a horrible death. A death worse than George Floyd died. Nails and blood and crowns of thorns and cursing and railing and a spear in the side and bleeding out. And he did that for every one of us, for mankind. And he paid for our sins. And then he arose from the dead. And he's alive today. America, that's the cure. And you take it or judgment. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.